Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And in a week where the political landscape remains unremittingly bleak, we learn from the ONS that inflation growth has slowed sharply in August, thanks largely to the fall in the price of clothing and computer games. And a former Google engineer wonders that robot weapons could cause accidental mass killings. <laughs> the news is great, isn't it? And Facebook revealed a host of devices to connect people, including a camera that sits next to your TV and lets you video chat on WhatsApp and Messenger. While you're watching TV? You're great. <laughs> Isn't that called your phone? I don't I don't know. But anyway, they had a big reveal of lots of um, connection and communication devices yesterday. So that okay. was the only one I picked up Gosh. on. But this week we're going to talk about a subject that's close to both of our hearts, the role of the non-exec director or the external director, the independent director or the outside director. They're all the same thing. Uh, I actually, um, I'm a non-exec director. You've acted as similar sort of role in as trustee and governors yep, yep, and yep. all of those sorts of things. And the non-exec director is typically a member of a board, not part of the day-to-day management team. And they're there to not engage in the day-to-day management, but gets involved in policy making, planning, monitoring and oversight. That's my understanding of a non-exec director. Uh, Heather, if I'm wrong, I'm in big trouble here. <laughs> no, I no, I, I I agree. I agree. And and actually, if you if you research, you know, what common thinking is that that kind of sums it up uh, and it, and you take it from the non-executive which means you're not executing which means you're not doing the doing but you are taking a much more strategic yeah not executing view. as in terms of that people's um, heads off google or... with the <laughs> the drones and no. the robot weapons no there. no none of that not no. not doing the do <laughs> not doing the do no no um, but it but increasingly organizations are in need of and particularly in the charity sector, um, are in need of non-exec directors. Uh, Often it's an unpaid role. Occasionally it's a paid role. Uh, Because every organisation of any size really needs or benefits from having an external pair of eyes or somebody with either some general knowledge where they can look uh, from a business point of view at a charity for argument's sake or some specialist knowledge where they have you know very detailed and specific knowledge about a certain area of that organization's dealings however even if you've got that specialist knowledge they do tend to act as mentors yeah to the people who are doing that totally. rather than getting stuck yeah, yeah, in because then you lose your independence yeah, don't you absolutely absolutely but it's having that it, it it's it, it is a bit like the getting in the helicopter and being able to look at what's happening because I think we all, no matter what we do, we get bogged down sometimes in the in the doing. Uh, and and there seems to be more and more um, emphasis put on have, having these types of roles and having this additional scrutiny, uh, particularly in this sort of big society world that we uh, yeah. that we now live in. I mean, typically, you, you would have thought... Um, that non-exec roles were only needed in the larger companies. Mm. But more and more SMEs are starting to recognise the benefits of having somebody on their board who can provide that objectivity, can provide perhaps a broader view, or can actually bring in their contacts. So it can be that they're they're bringing in their their vast network, you know, they've they've got experience elsewhere, and sometimes the non-exec is there for for that particular reason to help you to broaden your network. Yeah, to go in a particular direction or to 
to, yeah. yeah. And also I, I, I was uh, reading somewhere that some non-execs are actually installed on the board for public relation reasons. Um, I'm fairly certain that isn't the reason I was on the board uh, because I'm not bringing with me, um, uh, you know, this um, public exposure and... Um, this community standing necessarily that they could trumpet and say that it's some sort of symbolic value for the firm. Yeah. But you see, somebody who's perhaps got a high profile, it would be a good thing to bring them onto the board and to actually be able to shout about the fact that that person is bringing their expertise and experience to the business. One thing that's really important to mention, and I think sometimes um, people might consider going and, and being a trustee or a governor or an independent director, not actually thinking about the consequences of it. So non-executive directors are exactly the same legally responsible as executive directors. There is no legal distinction between the two. So before you consider accepting a non-exec appointment, it's really important that you really do your homework, that you get a full understanding of the company and you do your own due diligence because you are going to be equally responsible for that business's success or failure. Um, and you also need to keep on training. You need to keep up to date with what the business is doing and uh, any knowledge about the relevant sector and your own professional development is important as well. I think that what's what's interesting is very often um, non-executive directors are people who are retired because sometimes, you know, that's the only way that you've got time to, to take on a role like that. And so it's it, it's sometimes harder then to, to keep a finger on the pulse because yeah. you're, you're torn between that. I can't get into the detail, but I need to have the ability to know the sector well enough to be able to apply my knowledge and experience impartially almost um, so there's that whole retirement thing but I would urge people to to get involved if you can um, through your working career because you actually learn and develop your own skills massively as part of that role I mean I started off as you know it wasn't a non-executive role but you know chair of a chamber of commerce you know and then you, you know you move on to something else and you're, you're gathering information you're gathering reputation you're gathering experience so you don't go from not being being a non-executive director to being a director of an organisation and it being, whoa, hang on a minute, all the legal implications that that brings, you know exactly. It's a more gradual process, yeah. so you know where you're going. And that's um, a really important point to make if what you're thinking of doing is, is getting paid non-exec yes. director yeah. roles, which yeah. they do exist. Yeah. However, you can imagine the competition for them is quite fierce you can build yourself up slowly by volunteering your time and learning some of the skills about being on a board, being part of subcommittees and all of the, the um, governance that's involved with those sorts of things. You sort of have to put the groundwork in and then build yourself up to the paid roles. So I, I think it, there's a lot of opportunities there, and, and I agree. Do it before you've retired. Yes. If you can find the time for it, if your yeah. work allows you to do that. Because I, I think that even if it's not remunerated, the benefit, there are benefits there for you. Uh, and I think that, you, you know, pe if people are recruiting for a paid non-exec, they are looking for you to demonstrate that you can read loads of papers analyse what's going on within an organisation, attend a meeting, challenge thinking, yeah. probe, ask the right questions, And if you've experience of chairing meetings as yeah. well, that, that's a very valuable yeah. uh, expertise because 
that you know a board is going to be made up of lots of different people that's quite a skill to chair a meeting with with different um, outlooks and uh, no one person really in charge there yeah you know the chair's got to steer that meeting so I I did look on um, a couple of websites just for a a nice clear definition of the responsibilities of the non-exec director Um, obviously strategic direction so you've got to help to come up with creative and informed contributions to the strategy. And even if the strategy has been developed by the executive team, the the non-exec board is expected to actually contribute to that. Um, Monitoring performance, particularly with regards towards um, how you're going towards achieving your strategy and your objectives, and maybe in appointing um, the actual executive team as well, and succession planning. Um, remuneration boards sometimes there's a separate subcommittee for remuneration sometimes it's just down to the board itself and also um, communication so you could be representing the board externally um, you, you could actually be making connections as I said before with the company and, and um, making them externally as well you're responsible for risk so you're making sure the integrity of the financial information and that the financial controls are in place maybe checking the risk management is robust and defensible and then audit again sometimes larger companies have a formal audit committee and sometimes you're you're responsible as a board for audit so don't take it lightly Mm. but you can start gently as well you know volunteer your time with some of the smaller organizations some of the charities and and you can build up a really interesting um set of expertise and experience and i i agree totally and you think about risk and audit i mean audit financial audit okay that's one of those things but you know the whole cyber risk cyber security those elements if you sit on a subcommittee it's an opportunity to for you to find out whether that's something that actually floats your boat and that you can actually bring something to the table about so it's it's yeah it's the, the risk is you death by meeting as well well yeah there yes <laughs> and and you know you, there are there's lots of information that you need to be absorbing and um it's not easy but it i think that's part of the charm is yeah. that it's a challenge and certainly ru- you know running a very small business as i do being part of a larger organization uh it it keeps you in touch with that sort of bigger corporate kind of yeah. world and i think another thing i would add is don't just launch into a role because you you know you think it would be good on your CV. Actually, I think it's really important that you think that you're interested in the organisation that you're volunteering, or indeed even if you're getting paid, yeah. you, you're actually interested in it and you can buy into their values because that is part of the role is upholding those values and achieving the mission. If you don't really buy into them, you're not going to bring a lot to the table. No, no, you need to be a good fit. I've got a book here. Um, I, I I won't recommend it, so I'm not going to mention the name, but. There is one one really useful thing out of the book, which I thought was quite amusing. There's two quotes from the Financial Times, and it says that the non-executive director, a task for which no one is qualified. Oh, that's an opening gap. Because I think sometimes people might think, well, you have to be an accountant or you have to bring this skill or that skill. Actually, there there is quite a wide range of skills, but a lot of it is about being prepared to challenge and being prepared to ask questions mm. and being able to get involved. Now, you know, you could be the best skilled accountant or auditor in the world, but if you sit back and you just let it all flow over you, you're not bringing anything to that board. But this other quote from the Financial Times I love. 
The list of attributes required of the non-executive director is so long, precise and contradictory that there cannot be a single board member in the world that fully fits the bill. They need to be supportive, intelligent, interesting, well-rounded and funny, entrepreneurial, objective yet passionate, independent, curious, challenging and fit. They also need to have a financial background and real business experience, which actually I would say you don't necessarily need the financial background, not for all roles. They go on to say a strong moral compass and be a first-class all-rounder with the specific industry skills. And I think that's like a lot of job adverts. Don't assume that you have to meet all of those criteria because there is no one in the world that does meet every single one of those. In other news this week, uh, there are a couple of things that caught my eye. Um, it was the headline of this article on the BBC News uh, app, which I'm I'm all over the BBC app at the moment. I don't know why. I've, I've downloaded it. It gives you, if you've only got five minutes, what you need to read, main stories, etc. And then you can go further and further and further in. And this is um, an article which relates to a BBC Radio 5 live um, uh, wake up to money program the headline is my boss lets me set my own salary and I thought oh okay let's have a look at that um and this is a story about um a young woman a 25 year old uh, lady whose name i can't pronounce and she gave herself a, a seven thousand pound pay rise which took her annual salary up to thirty seven thousand pounds and you think oh okay that sounds interesting um but then it goes on to say that there's actually a process around this where you you look at what you think you're worth. You look at what you think you bring to the organisation and then you test that. So, Because a lot of us think, well, you know, I have more than earn my money, blah, blah, blah. Well, OK, that's just your perception. So you test the thinking with your peer group, with your, with your colleagues, and then you, you build a case and you present that. And it's scrutinised and it's discussed by other people. And then an award is either made or not. Now, there's a risk that, um, you know, you might get a knockback and then you can't deal yeah. with that. Disgruntled employees. Disgruntled employees, yes. But it sounds, it, and the organisation she works for is a company called Grant Tree, And they help UK businesses um, get government funding. Uh, and every member of staff, they've got 45 staff, they set their own salary and they can review it whenever they like. And do does every member of staff know every other member of staff's salary? Well, that's another element, isn't it, that does does everybody know? Um, we're not great in this country for transparency. For tra- no, we're not. Salaries. We're not. But you... Um, it's not everybody within the organisation that you would be pitching it to, you know, so there would be an appropriate panel of people who would, well, your boss and your peers, um, who would judge whether or not that £7,000 is justifiable or not. But another interesting thing is that there are a couple of members of staff at that organisation who actually reduced their pay. They elected voluntarily to reduce their pay after their responsibilities had changed. Now, where this, how this sits in terms of employment law, I have no idea. Um, I guess if you agree... If, if you walk in and decision. say, yeah, I'm doing less work, therefore, um, or I have less responsibility. But I just thought... It's an interesting thing, and I imagine it will grow in some way. I don't know how or I don't know where. I'm sure it yeah. brings some problems, but... Obviously, at the moment, so many companies are talking about problems they've got with recruitment and retention. So these new ways of thinking have got to come into... Maybe not all companies straight away. I can't imagine that happening. But some forward-thinking companies might think that that's a good way 
to, to attract or to retain some of their key staff? Well, particularly if you add that to flexible working, um, real-time earnings, you know, you yeah. know, all of these different things all joined together, working from home, you know, are there different levels of pay for different parts of your role? Um, I just thought it was an interesting one. It caught my eye. And then the other thing that caught my eye, apart from the fact that in The Guardian, um, it, they're talking about uh, importers are stockpiling alcohol ready for Christmas in advance of the that B word. thing. Um, so anything that says stockpiling alcohol, my eye is automatically drawn towards. How's your stockpile doing, Heather? It's, it's a bit depleted, actually. I think <laughs> I need to work harder at not drinking it and uh, um, and at buying it. But the other thing that I've, I came across, again, on the BBC, there was talk about, you know, all the food allergies, um, that you know, the, the 14 different food allergies that exist now that include things like celery and sesame and you know lots lots of different things unless you're affected by them you might not necessarily know about but there's um something called menu guide pro if you run a food business um it's a subscription service but you can upload your menu and they will scrutinize your menu um for each of the potential allergy um criteria and then feed back to you what you need to be flagging up and what you don't need to be flagging up. So, wow. for, for example, I didn't know celery was a thing. Now, maybe if I was in the food industry, I might know that. But if I was just in the market of making sandwiches and then I buy in some mayonnaise and that might have some celery in it. Yeah. So um, I didn't know that. I, I worked for a food company and they, they kept all the celery products in a special room. Right. Yeah. With, with all like sesame and things. Yeah. Like yeah. That. I didn't realise all the things they kept the, yeah, pepper, in that separate room. Yeah. Pepper is, is, is um, an allergen now. So but I, so I thought it was a really interesting thing. So if you are in the food business, um, you might want to check out our, our website, thebusiness.community, because there'll be links to these things on there. What have you got, Tracy? Okay, so some guidance from ACAS uh, about the Rugby World Cup, which is starting tomorrow. And it's been held in Japan. So the match times in the UK will be between 6am and 11am and uh, ACAS recognised that many employees in Wales might want to follow their country and enjoy the event and obviously they may be considering wanting to see it on their phones on the internet or to stay updated on the match results so um, ACAS are advising that employers think about this if they're concerned about staff productivity and how much they want to be flexible how much they want to plan around it um, and they've got guidelines there so if you go to the ACAS website and we'll put a link for that on our website the business.community but they've got some guides on planning ahead looking at annual leave so if people are asking for time off to actually go to matches um, how to take a flexible ab approach how to deal with sickness absence um, if you you know if you're suspecting that somebody's off sick related to the Rugby World Cup, um, use of websites and social networking and um, being under the influence at work or drinking at work. So, all of that guideline, all of that guidance is available there on the ACAS website. And then a, a couple of articles caught my eye, which are related to companies that we've featured on the show before. So, first of all, uh, this article in the week this week uh, was talking about the body shop returning to its roots. And they're opening a concept store which goes back to their activist beginnings. And they're opening this store opposite Bond Street Station in London, which includes a refill station for shower gels. And as Heather rightly pointed That's what out, they used yeah, to do. Yeah. before the show, she went, 
they, they always they used to do that. But according to this article, apparently that they stopped doing it because customers failed to understand how it worked, which is mind-boggling Amazing. now. It, it seems fairly you obvious. You could go in and buy, you could buy like tiny little bottles of jewellery and <laughs> things like that. But then you could send different like bath oils with it and... Amazing. And you take the bottle back and they fill it up again. So as well as the refill zones, they're also going to have a zone to encourage customers to join a collective of local activists, which Ooh. sounds interesting. So it's now got 3,000 stores in more than 60 countries. Um, it was sold to L'Oreal by Anita Roddick, but um, it was then sold in 2017 to a Brazilian cosmetics company called Natura, um, which was thought to be worth about £880 million. And it's actually defying all of the... We, we have a lot of negative news about the high street. But according to their MD, Linda Campbell, they say that UK sales are up by 4% year on year Fantastic. at the moment. So that's good. And the other one is a Wrexham-based company that we've mentioned before. It's Best Companies behind um, the annual Sunday Times Best Companies to Work For list, which we've mentioned a couple of times. And they've just upgraded their cafe um, in, their, in their workspace at work. So they've just invested £200,000 in a 16-week renovation project. £200,000? Yes. Okay. To to um, treble the size of their cafe um, to um, accommodate the company's growing workforce. And their aim is to have a tranquil space where employees can enjoy a relaxed dining experience, socialise, celebrate special occasions or work away from their desks. They've got a full-time chef providing the employees with a selection of free lunches and desserts to choose from. And they're apparently inspired by seasonal fruit and vegetables which are grown on the company's allotments and managed by the staff. Lots of things there. 200. <laughs> You're still stuck at the 200. Sorry, <laughs> I've been to their cafe. I, I worked for that organisation for a number of years and... I, I just heard that number and I just think, oh my goodness, that's that's a lot of money. You're listening to The Business Community on Calon FM. In the discovery section of this show, I'm going to talk about Workplace for Business, which comes to us courtesy of Facebook. Now, in one of the places that I work a few months ago, I was part of a pilot testing out using Workplace for Business and now it's been implemented across the whole business um, as of this week so it's hot off the press and the aim of it is to replace the news feed from the intranet homepage that's the first aim and what they're doing is opening up new sharing facilities to all employees there's a one main sort of main news section which only the administrators can put the news on as would they would have done on the internet news page but there's lots of other different interest groups that can post news so there's there's an interest group for each individual site around the world there's interest groups for people working in the same area say hr or health and safety or um, there's an interest group for which is just called my day and it, it's people can post pictures of their experiences. Now, given that this is a global company and oh. there, there is representation all around the world, that is the group where I've been going, wow, mm. look at that. That's how they, oh, their uniform's different. Yeah. Oh, look at that scenery. Yeah. You know, look at this, look at that. And that's been really interesting. So, so far, I've sort of been on the surface of it. But now we've got our own... Um, local company site as well we started to use it for our news um, and literally yesterday getting users involved in it 
one of the things that was really popular were the GIFs and the emojis, which people can freely use. Obviously, corporate culture is changing. You wouldn't have used a GIF or an emoji in other forms of communication, but here it's okay. And it, it feels comfortable to people who've used Facebook as well. And we're told that Facebook don't control the data, the company does. And we're, we're encouraging people to engage. So the idea is that it's promoting openness and feedback, uh, diversity and engaging employees. And I think ultimately it's about culture. And like I say, sharing pictures of what you're doing around the world is enlightening. You see that you're part of this bigger whole than, than your own little um, organisation. And it brings everybody closer together. Yeah, yeah. So you can see that diversity in the whole company and how it fits together. And um, you can run polls on there so you can ask people you know, to provide their opinions on things. Um, you can use the chat. There's a chat function just the same as there is with Messenger in Facebook. Um, you can do live videos. You can do webinars. You can post articles. You don't store your documents on there. So um, if you're using Microsoft, you'd use, carry on using SharePoint or whatever facility you've got. Um, and you, you can get that instant reaction. So it's quite pleasing. We, we had some good news locally yesterday. We posted that on our site, but because it's open to the rest of the world, people were commenting and congratulating, which is, that's nice instant mm -hmm. feedback. So as well as the local team seeing that news, everybody else and then the local team see that everybody else is interested and it really lends to, to that sense of, of being part of, of something bigger. Now, um, it's nice to see all of those things. One thing I would say is it's social media ultimately. Mm -hmm. So immediately some people's browsers went, no, you can't do this. This is social media. Uh, Technical okay. problem there. That it's not something I'd experienced having piloted it. And then a few people contacted me and said, oh, I can't do it. It's a, this is a social media site. So, OK, IT, can you sort this out, please? So it is, it is still social media, which also means that you have to be careful. It doesn't suck up all of your time. We know social media can suck up all of your time. And, and this is where um, the company is allowing you to do this. But you have to also limit yourself a little bit as yeah, well. You can't spend the whole day yeah. just... At the moment, there isn't a great deal of content on there. But once all the sites start posting all their news and there's other interest groups, how are you going to cope with that change culturally? Particularly in organisations where you, you maybe wouldn't have... You know, everybody on the factory floor maybe wouldn't have been encouraged to go on a computer all the time. Now they're being encouraged to not only go on a computer, but also to access social media. So then you sort of as a company, I imagine you're having to draw the distinction between, well, you can use this social media, but you can't log on to your own personal social media at work. And is it done? So um, you have a separate login. You don't, you know, very often you go to something now and it says log on with Facebook. You can't log no. on with Facebook. You have a separate log login. The, the way that, yeah, it's a completely separate to your personal. There's no link to your personal one at all. So that's one risk out of the way. But also if you've got a single sign-in option with Windows and, and, and all of that, then you can connect it so that once you've signed into your account, it signs into Workplace for you as well. So right, you okay. can have that sort of level of, of access. One of the things I want to look out for is confusion about which platform to use. So uh, at the moment, we all the sites have a SharePoint site as well. So all the different factories have their own SharePoint site. And there's a facility to put news on there. 
there's also Teams, there's also email, there's Skype. So actually, which of these collaboration tools are you going to start using? My, my personal thinking is if it's working at the moment for culture and communications and people are getting used to sharing news and learning about things on there, then collaboration will happen organically in whichever tool works better mm. for the team they're working with. You know, with at, at the moment, Skype and email works absolutely fine. And I would say in small sites, face-to-face -face probably is the best collaboration tool. Yeah, of course. You don't want to take everything online when actually the person is just working down the hall and you need to go and see them face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Um, Facebook have provided a, quite a good resource centre, so there's a lot of material on there that companies can use to actually train their staff. Or if you're interested in learning more, you can go on there. There's downloadable and materials you can get there's training sessions and webinars and there's uh, advice and guidance on how you can use workplace and there's a number of different case studies now i was interested to note that there weren't any manufacturing companies as case studies on that website you work in manufacturing do you? i work in manufacturing maybe you could volunteer yeah come and have a look and how we use this yeah so the, the nature of how we're communicating and collaborating in workplaces is changing. And I think uh, I just thought I'd highlight this. It's an option for you if you want to collaborate. It's called Workplace and it's provided by Facebook. And can you, uh, if you are on the Internet and you see an article on the BBC, for argument's sake, can you copy and paste a link into that and share it? Yeah. Yeah. OK. So it can it, bring in other you can. media. And, and it is um, it's a sharing platform in the same way that Facebook yeah. is. So you can share posts from other groups. Yeah. The, the main difference, I would say, with Facebook and workplaces, that the focus, certainly in the way that we're using it, is on groups. So you wouldn't post to your own wall. You wouldn't say like post as... Tracy, yep. and here's what I've been doing today. Here's my breakfast. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I'd, if I wanted to post about something um, that had happened on our site, I'd post on our group. Yeah. If it was something of general interest, maybe to the HR team or the IT team, I'd go to their groups. And if it was a general one about, oh, look how sunny and lovely it is in Wrexham today. Just look at all yeah. of this scenery going on. I'd probably post that in my day group. Okay. So it's about finding the right group in which to post things and also choosing the right groups to to get on your news feed. Because mm. as with Facebook, you could be inundated with loads of stuff you're not, not really, really interested, interested in. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. OK, um, I've... Um, as, actually, as part of the research that we, we were doing into non-executive director roles, I spent quite a lot of time on a website that I do visit from time to time, which is the Institute of Directors. And I started to recognise what a valuable resource it is in terms of free information, free fact sheets, um, free ideas. Now, yet yeah, you can be a member. Uh, a membership isn't cheap um, if you are... Um, if you if you want to join, you basically you pay a joining fee and then you pay your subscription fee. So it's actually six hundred and forty quid um, for for one year. Um, a life membership is seven thousand four hundred and seventy quid. Uh, but there we go. Um, so it's not accessible to everybody. But the resources that I mentioned, um, they sit there and there's pretty much something on everything. And what you can do is you can search categories. So you could put fact sheets. And then you can search the tags. So let's say that we said uh, education. And then you just search and it brings up um, 
Oh, actually, because I didn't put in a keyword, it didn't like <laughs> that. Okay, what did I say? Education. Let's put training and see what it gives us. This is live, folks. This is live as we speak. Uh, what What is the role of the HR director? Um, developing a staff well-being policy. I think it's gone. To, using training effectively. Sell your products or services. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et you get the gist. Uh, and they're they're laid out really easy. They're easy to follow. They're not too wordy. They're topical. They're up to date. It's not just like a library of stuff that's, you know, 20 years old. Um, so, yeah, the IOD.com, the resources and uh, fact sheets section. And I'll put a link to this as well as uh, anything else that we've talked about on our website, thebusiness.community. Well, as you mentioned, all the resources, I just wanted to mention a few events that oh, yeah. they're they hosting. So there's a um, big event, um, which is a one-day experience, which is uh, what is the role of the non-executive director? Mm -hmm. This is a big um, investment, I believe. It's £1,300 right. for one day, including dinner, and typically they're held in London. Mm -hmm. And more locally to these, and potentially more affordable as well, the North Wales IOD have got a CPD event for members and non-members can go as well. Obviously, the price is slightly higher. Uh, and this is on the 24th of October in Mould. And this is from their professional director series. So it's a CPD and it's quite a broad range of um topics that they're talking about there so um, strategic decision making improving board dynamics practical tips for becoming a non-exec director and that's sort of uh, I think we're looking around the £300 mark for the full day or you could just do the morning or just do the afternoon um, and prices vary depending on whether you're a member or a non-member and then this one caught my eye this is from the IOD for North West and Isle of Man and it's the Enterprise in Women Conference mm -hmm. this is on the 17th of October and it's in Manchester and there's a real good range of speakers priced reasonably again um, members £75 plus VAT non-members £90 plus VAT but it's a full day of talks, discussion groups. So there's um, the change mindset, uh, what you can do with a big idea, authentic leadership, aligning your purpose and personality, Q&A sessions with the speakers, um, a discussion on exporting, um, the future of us. I don't know what that is, but that sounds interesting. Snakes and ladders turning a crisis into an opportunity. Climate change, the greatest leadership challenge of our generation. I've still only got up to two o'clock here. So it goes on. That The event is from uh, 8.30 registration. Keynote um, speaker is at 10 past nine. And that's quite a good event at the price point. So that is uh, 17th of October. And that's all of that can be found at the IOD website. And Heather, as she said, we'll put a link for that on our website, thebusiness.community. Our business profile this week um, focuses on, well, he's not so young now, but he, he I always think of him as a, a, as a very young man um, who made his fortune through food. It's the well-known TV chef, former Naked Chef, uh, and restaurateur Jamie Oliver. Do you remember how exciting that was all those years ago? The Naked Chef. The Naked Chef, yeah. Yeah, this Is young guy, yeah. Cooking the buff. 
looking the buff. Yeah, it didn't quite work out like that. But I used to really enjoy those programs. Yeah. yeah, he was. Um, it he was, was very fresh. A breath. Yeah. yeah, a breath of fresh air. Um, he 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 started off working in. Um, well. He started off working in his mum and dad's pub, I think. I think there was a bit of that. And then um, Car- Antonio Carluccio was a family friend um, and he got a job with him as a pastry chef and then started working at the River Cafe uh, and then was spotted by a TV maker and that's when The Naked Chef started. Uh, and then, of course, I, I don't think... Well, I don't imagine there's a single house in the land that hasn't had or still got a Jamie Oliver cookbook somewhere in the cupboard. I mean, absolutely. You know, it was just if, if you didn't buy it for yourself, somebody would buy it you for Christmas or birthday. Um, but in recent years, he's been through some trials and tribulations. But he he's well, he's best known, I think, for spearheading campaigns around healthy eating within schools he started his um is it jamie oliver 15 the restaurants that were manned by people who that was in 2001 there we go yeah um people who were homeless or um it, they were homeless people weren't they predominantly yes, uh, or ex- had been ex-offenders yeah. ex-offenders yeah um so really working on um using food and, and the restaurant business as a platform for people to grow and develop um and Perhaps one of his other best-known things is his friend, the guy who keeps the pigs, who Jimmy, Jimmy Jimmy's farm, who I, th- I think you know Jamie gave him a bit of a spot on one of his shows, and you know now Jimmy is his doing own TV and yeah, his own persona. Yeah, so so love him or hate him, uh, he's done a lot of good work, uh, and he's got an MBE. For his um, for some of the work that he's done, have you ever eaten in a Jamie Oliver restaurant, Tracy? I have indeed. And what did you think? I liked it. I also liked the children's menu, which I thought was sort of grown-up food in child portions. Yep. Which at the time when he started offering that, it, that wasn't a regular thing you would get in a restaurant. You'd have like a um, a dumbed-down version. Yeah, it would be of, like fish fingers and chips and peas yeah or a, yeah I've, I've always enjoyed it yes yeah I have to say. yeah uh, and i have several of his books indeed yep yeah I've, my house is full of cookery books <laughs> so he was going to be there i did last night watch his ted talk ah. um he um he was doing some work over in america um i think it's all part of the food revolution in america and he was invited to talk in fact he was given the ted prize I don't know the full details of what a TED Prize is, but he did his standard 20-minute talk. It was very engaging. Uh, it was really good. But it's all based around this this project that he's got, which is to tackle childhood obesity. Um, I had a look on his website, and he's, it's called the 2030 Project. And they're aiming to inspire positive change in the home, on the high street, in the workplace, in hospitals and schools um, to halve childhood obesity by 2030. And one thing we do know from his work with um, Ministry of Food, school dinners, 15, he's a campaigner and he, yeah. he'll, he'll actually will get involved. And his website also says that um, his business is made up of media, restaurant and products underpinned by their social purpose which is to build a healthier future of our kids now we've talked a lot about um, purpose and and having social purpose behind companies and here's here's an organization that's um, actually embodying that so underpinning all of his choices is this this social purpose and the project 2030 
I think it's, it, 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 I don't know about you, but when I was researching him, it was actually, for somebody who's in the public eye, it was really difficult to find out anything about who he actually is as a, per, a person. You see his persona, you know he's got five kids and they've all got really funky names. I love, you know, they're all random names which are which are wonderful um but building on the ted talk theme i found five ted talks that he would recommend and i thought that started to give an insight into hopefully some of the the real jamie although of course a part of this will be his persona and there were five uh, the first one is an 11 year old guy um burke bear i'm sorry if i've mispronounced his name um what's wrong with our food system so um that's looking at um, farming and um, big agriculture. There's uh, one by Geoffrey Canada, Are Failing Schools Enough is Enough? Um, why does our education system look so much like it did 50 years ago? Uh, Wade Davis, Dreams from Endangered Cultures. Um, looking at, it's a, a National Geographic explorer who looks at the diversity of our indigenous cultures around the world. A garden in my apartment, somebody who wanted to grow her own food but had only basically got um, a window box and a tiny little balcony. Uh, and then another one, that was a lady called Britta Riley. And then Erin Huey, who um, looks at America's native prisoners of war. Uh, and those are TED Talks, there are gazillions of TED Talks. Um, those are TED Talks that I probably would never have happened upon, but I now feel compelled to watch them because they, to me, they're painting a a picture of, of this guy, Jamie Oliver, and what he might actually stand for behind all of the... Um, As if you needed another reason to watch TED Talks. Well, it, it just <laughs> helps you to sift through them, really. Yes. Which one shall I watch? Oh, here we go. Here's five I need to watch. I went to look at Company's House to understand um, the, the makeup of his business. It is explained quite nicely in an article from uh, The Guardian, and uh, they, they've done a nice infographic there which talks about Jamie Oliver Holdings and the Jamie Oliver Restaurant Group, Jamie Oliver Licensing. But, I, I, you know, I, I like to go to the, the source material and that's uh, Company's House. So Jamie Trevor Oliver has got 11 current appointments and sadly that involves a number which are in administration and a couple that are dormant. So in administration, Jamie's Italian Holdings, Jamie Oliver Restaurant Group and Jamie's Italian Limited, uh, a number of dormant ones. But what I what I really picked up on is the way that he's made his money is through um, this this thing called artistic creation. Okay. And it's his it's his brand. It's him. It's his name. It's his television. It's a licensing, uh, intellectual property, copyright. Um, and so the group company is Jamie Oliver Holdings Limited. Their turnover in 2017, actually their accounts are due at the end of this month, but their latest accounts to the end of 2017, um, their turnover was £32 million, profit of £8 million before tax and exceptional items. So the exceptional items were related to the Oliver Restaurant Group. And um, an interim dividend was paid, but no final dividend because of these exceptional items. And the group has net assets of £6.4 million. Uh, I love that. Type. The, so nature of business, you always have to describe yes. your business, don't you, when yeah. you register it. Artistic creation. I like that. Yes. <laughs> um, 
I also found out that he'd injected around uh, 26 to 30 million pounds of his own money into Jamie's Italian before it failed in May. Um, Sadly, more than a thousand employees lost their jobs. I did find out, however, that he had never taken any money from the restaurant business. So his vast wealth, which is estimated to be around 240 million pounds, um, it all comes from the licensing and the brand and the image and the t- and the TV stuff, not from the restaurants. So, yeah, I struggled a little bit with a quote, but uh, I've got one which is um, from the Financial Times. And he's talking here about the fact that he relies on others to manage his business for him. And he says that don't forget that my day job's doing jazz hands and making content for television and books. I can't do everything. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.